scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down. Who have turned the upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they had heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of the Lord to us. During World War II, there were some very prominent generals that came to the forefront of U.S. history. One of the more outstanding and outspoken of those generals was General George S. Patton. Patton didn't believe in retreating. He didn't believe in surrender. And they asked him, why do you never sound retreat? And he said, because I don't like to pay for the same ground twice. I think that's Paul's philosophy. I think that's Paul's attitude. As we see him going into, as we read in Acts 17, and they go on from Philippi to Thessalonica, after the events of Philippi, it would have been easy for Paul and Silas and the team to just stay in Philippi for a while. Or even after the beatings and after the hardship and after the difficulty, they kind of backtrack and say, let's go back home for a little while. Let's go back to Antioch and, and refresh ourselves. Let's, let's go back to Jerusalem and collect our thoughts, and heal our bodies, refresh our souls, and, and really discern if this is something that we really want to do. Many of us, no doubt, would have sounded retreat after Philippi. But not Paul. No. Paul and Silas and his team, the Bible says, they pressed on. They went further, further on into Macedonia, not knowing what more to expect, perhaps much of the same that they had received in, in Philippi. But instead of resting upon their laurels, what did they do? They traveled some hundred more miles. Further on into Macedonia, till they reached the capital city of Thessalonica. Paul and Barnabas, there would be no retreat. 
when they leave Philippi and they come to Thessalonica. Something important here, beloved, begins to happen. And I don't want us to miss this, and I want to bring this to your attention because this is going to inform us as we seek to understand more and understand better what is going to happen to Paul and the early church and Acts and going forward even unto our time. What happens when Paul leaves Philippi and makes his way to Thessalonica? It's very important. Because, beloved, up until this time, up until Philippi, and even through their time in in Philippi, the the mission and the, the message was accompanied by miracles. But when they get to Thessalonica, there are no miracles. And as you go on and continue reading in Acts, the miracles begin to wane. There'll be a few here and a few there, but nothing like we've seen up until this point. Because the ministry and the mission will be driven by the word of God. The word proclaimed. The word preached. There would be a few more, as we'll read in Acts going forward, but nothing like in the beginning in Jerusalem. Nothing like they had in Antioch. Nothing like they had in Philippi. Why? Because, beloved, the normal means of God building his church is upon the proclamation and the preaching of the word. The normal way God building his church, beloved, is not upon miracles. It's the word. It's the word preached. And we see this in Thessalonica. We see this in Thessalonica because in Thessalonica, the team demonstrates for us the priority of preaching Jesus. That's what they did. They preached Christ. And that is what made all the difference. And in this preaching of Christ, we see two things that happen here in Thessalonica. That continues to happen, that has happened throughout the history of the church and continues to happen today. And this is normative for the church. Paul reminds us here, Beginning of Acts 17, the reasons for preaching Christ and the results of preaching Jesus. The reasons for preaching Jesus. 
Notice what happens when he goes to Thessalonica. Unlike when they had went to Philippi, in Thessalonica is a bigger city. There's more people there, and there's a stronger Jewish community. And therefore, Paul and Silas and his team does what they had done in other places. They find the synagogue, and they go to the synagogue. They go to the synagogue because, as the Bible says here, this was their normal ministry strategy. They went to the place where people were studying the Bible. They went to the place where people were talking about the things of God. They went to the synagogue. And that's what the Bible says. And on three Sabbath days, he, Paul, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to re and to be raised from the dead. For three weeks in a row. For three weeks in a row, Paul goes to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, for three straight weeks, he reasoned, they read, and he proved from the Bible, that Jesus is the Christ. No miracles. It's opening the word of God. Reasoning and explaining, proving God's word to be true. And what Paul, Paul was saying, beloved, he was saying the same thing. Over and over and over again. For three weeks, he went to the synagogue, and I'm sure every time they saw him coming, they said, oh boy, here comes Paul. All he want to do is talk about Jesus. Every week in the synagogue, some of the faces changed. Every week in the synagogue, somebody will probably read a different Old, Old Testament scripture. There'll be a different conversation. But when Paul stood up to preach, he was saying the same thing. Over and over again. Whatever scripture they read, Paul would say, oh, wow, yeah, well, let me tell you what that says about Jesus. Over and over and over again for three straight weeks. Names change, the faces change, the weather changed. Paul kept preaching Jesus. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 reminds us of it. That the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. It doesn't change, beloved. If you ever wonder, why we seek to preach like we do, it is because if you preach the Bible, it is to preach Jesus. Yes, yes, we read different texts every week. Our context changes. We'll be in this building this week. We'll be in another building another week and another building after that. And though the text 
changes, and though the context may change, the preaching does not change. We seek to open the scriptures and reason from them the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus doesn't change. Hebrews 13 reminds us, doesn't it, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Doesn't change. Doesn't change. Doesn't change. And this is why Paul would say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 2, I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's it. That's it. You can talk about a lot of things. You can open the scriptures and find a lot of principles for good living. But you haven't said anything until you took those scriptures and pointed people to Jesus. That is the foundation upon which the church is built. So it was. Week after week after week, Paul reasoned with them, opening and explaining what the Bible says about the necessity and the sufficiency of Jesus. You see that? He showed them the necessity of knowing who Jesus is. Those in the synagogue, beloved, they thought they understood the scriptures. Every week they come in there, they're opening the law, they're opening the prophets, they're opening the Psalms, and they're reading them, and they honestly believe they understand what the Bible says. But here's the reality. You don't understand what the Bible says apart from Jesus. Apart from Christ, you might as well be trying to read in the dark. You haven't a clue what the Bible means apart from Jesus. This is what Jesus himself said in John chapter 5 and verse 39. And speaking to some of these same people that Paul would have been reasoning with here in Thessalonica, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that they bear witness about me. You searching the scriptures because you think you're going to find the truth of God. That you will be just as ignorant as you were before if you don't know who Jesus is. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus, the Bible says that he opened the scriptures to his disciples on that Emmaus road and taught them 
all that the scriptures have to say about him from the law of Moses to the prophets and to the Psalms. Jesus showed them that the Bible makes it clear. From beginning to end, it is about Jesus. necessary. It's necessary that you know Jesus. And in reading the scriptures, it is necessary that you know that Jesus had to suffer. That's what he says. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer. And so Paul is putting in the context all that has happened and all they had heard about this one who is known as Jesus, the, the Christ. And the suffering that happened to Jesus, beloved, was not simply because people didn't like him. But the suffering that Jesus endured, beloved, was suffering that was necessary. He must suffer if, as the Bible says in the Old Testament, your sins and my sins are going to be forgiven. He must have suffered. According to what the Bible says, he suffered to take the punishment and payment due you and me for our sin. Isaiah 53 and verse 6. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us laid upon him the iniquity of us all. When were your sins laid upon Jesus? Your sins were laid upon Jesus as he suffered and died on the cross. The iniquity of us all, all of us, all of God's elect, all of God's people, all of God's chosen generation, all those who bow the knee and profess a faith in Jesus Christ, all those sins have been laid upon Jesus and your iniquities and your transgressions are forgiven. Therefore, he must suffer so that you and I won't. But notice Notice what the prophet says here. Notice that he says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. So understand this, beloved. It is not just since that, that God took the corporate sin of all those chosen in Christ and laid them on Christ. I want you to feel the weight of this, that he took your particular way of going astray. However you sin, because you don't sin like I sin. You haven't turned away like I've turned away. Each of us has turned to his own way. And God took your particular sin and laid it upon Jesus. This is so important to know. 
because a lot of people still hold on to their sin because they think their sin is so much worse than other people's sin. And God could forgive him. A God could forgive her. But they haven't done what I've done. They haven't gone as far as I've gone. And the Bible says that each of us has turned to his or her own way. And the Lord has laid upon Christ your sin. Your sin. He must suffer for you. For you, Brian. For you, Leon. For you, Allison. For you, Christy. For you. For you. He ransomed the church, the Bible says, with his own blood. But everybody in the church has a name. But everybody in the church has a life. Everybody in that church has a history. And every one of those names, every one of those lives, every one of those histories, he has redeemed. He must Songwriter says, we may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear. But we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. I may not know how much it costs to see my sins upon that cross. But I have no other argument and I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And who did he die for? He died. He died. For me. For me. It was necessary that Jesus would suffer. Beloved, it is only not necessary that he should suffer. Notice that Paul doesn't leave it there. Does it? For he says it was necessary for Jesus to be raised from. It's necessary that Jesus to be raised from the dead. Beloved, it is important that we understand that we do not worship just a crucified Savior. We worship a resurrected Lord. Just as it was necessary for Christ to suffer and die, the preaching that Paul engages in makes it necessary for that Christ who suffered to be raised from the dead. Why? Understand this. There is no Christian faith without the resurrection. There is no faith. There is no church. There is no salvation. There is no hope. There is no gospel if Christ is not raised. 
And so we preach a suffering Savior, but we also proclaim a resurrected Lord. Why? Because if Christ was not raised, then our preaching his death is in vain. It is foolish. If Christ is not raised, then the fact that your sins were laid upon him means nothing. It means nothing. You are not forgiven. And if Christ is not raised, then heaven is a pipe dream. And when you die, you go into a black hole. And it means nothing. If Christ is not raised, beloved, then God is a liar and the church is full of fools. He is not raised. This is why Paul proclaims it is necessary that Christ be raised from the dead. It is needful for you that Christ be raised from the dead, beloved. Heaven depends on it. The church is dependent upon it. Meaning in this life and the next is dependent upon it. Eternal life is dependent upon it. This is why I just cannot understand why churches call themselves churches and don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. You are wasting your time. Guarantee you, beloved. I guarantee you, if Christ was not raised, Paul would have found something better to do. I know I would. The fact of the matter is, the Lord is risen. He is risen, and Paul knew it, and that's why he took the beatings, because he knew it. That's why James went and was willing to suffer even death because he knew the Lord was raised. That's why Peter and, and John was willing to suffer loss and the loss of all things. That's why the disciples was willing to be ridiculed because they knew that Christ not only died, but that he had risen again from the grave. why we're here today because Jesus is alive Jesus is alive beloved you will not know how many times in my own prayer and conversation with myself I've looked at my life and considered can, is there something else that I can do And the thing that I keep coming back to is that there is a resurrected Christ. And if Christ is raised, I cannot think of anything else that I would rather do 
than to remind people and point people to that resurrected Lord. As it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. He must not only die, but he must be raised. Needs to be. this life and the next one to have any meaning at all. And that is what Paul preached. He preached the necessity of Jesus. But he not only preached the necessity of Jesus, beloved, he preached the sufficiency of Christ. Do you know what was happening in that synagogue? Those men, some of those women, they we're searching in those Bibles looking for Jesus. But they didn't know. They didn't know what they were looking for. They knew they were looking for the Messiah. They knew they were looking for the Christ. Paul comes along and tells them, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the one you search the scriptures looking for. He's already been here. The one you are looking for has come. Has come. Jesus is the Christ. Beloved, Christ is not his last name. I know we tend to think of it as his last name. What's your name? Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus never went around telling people, what's your name? Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Jesus is his name when the angel comes to Joseph. The angel says, you shall call his name Jesus Christ. No. He says, you shall call his name Jesus. God, that's his name. Then what is Christ? Christ is his title. Christ is the reality that this Jesus is Messiah. This Jesus is the anointed one of God. This Jesus is the one promised and prophesied in the Old Testament to come and deliver God's people from their sins. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, Paul says, is the Christ you've been looking for. Now, beloved, this is so important. Because every week, the people went to the synagogue for one purpose, really, and that is looking to find the truth about Messiah. That's what they were doing. They were opening the Bibles, and their conversation was about, when is God going to send Messiah? When is God going to send the Christ? When is God going to send our deliverer? Who is he? Where is he? When will he come? Paul comes into the synagogue week in and week out and telling them the one that you have been looking for, he's here. He's here. Let me see your Bible. And let me explain to you he's here. I won't rehearse at all, beloved. Because there are too many to rehearse for you this morning. 
But this Jesus, who is the Christ, in the Old Testament, for all those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus is clearly proclaimed. Born of a woman, Genesis chapter 3, 15. Born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Born of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49 and 10. Born as the heir to the throne of David, 2 Samuel 7 and 12. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11 and verse 12. Pierced in the hands and feet, Zechariah 12 and 10. Buried and numbered among the rich, Isaiah 53 and 9. Raised again from the dead, Psalm 16 and 10. And on and on and on and on again, Paul had a wealth of scriptures at his disposal to show them that the Christ, that the Jesus that he proclaimed to them is indeed the Christ. He's the one you've been looking for. And if he's the one you've been looking for, beloved, then he is the only one that you need. He's sufficient. He's the only one you need. You've been searching the scriptures. You've been looking for something. I'm here to tell you, it's Jesus. He's the one you're looking for. He's the one you need. Jesus is the one all human hearts are searching for. It's Jesus. There are people that are searching. There's people who are searching in the Bible. There's people who are searching outside of the Bible. And they're looking. And they don't know exactly what they're looking for. But we are here to proclaim you that that which you are looking for has come. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The whole human heart, the whole human existence, every human being in the world is searching for something. Most of them have no clue what it is. We are here to proclaim that it's Jesus the Christ. Here's the amazing thing. Somehow and some way, the devil has convinced the church, you and I, that there's more to be found in Jesus. That he is not sufficient. He's been able to convince you and he's been able to convince me somehow, some way, that Jesus is not enough. And so what happens? Christians, Christians running the rat race, just running around, seeking for more. And more and more. And trying to find satisfaction in everything and anything that the world has to offer. And they run and they run and they run. And there's no joy. No peace. And they run from relationship to relationship. They run from city to city and party to party. No joy. No contentment. Short-term pleasures. Leading to emptiness and vanity. And in vanity, all is vanity. God 
sits in heaven, beloved. And the Bible says he wonders, why? Why do my people spend their money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Why? And the Bible says, from Jesus' own mouth, he says that he is that bread. He is the bread from heaven that if you would eat of him in John chapter 6, you won't be hungry anymore. He is that water of life. And he says that if you would drink from him, you would not be thirsty anymore. He's the one you've been looking for. He's the one you need. Before I got married, there was something that I had to settle in my heart. And I knew it. I had to get settled in my heart that Jesus was going to be enough. Because if Jesus was not going to be enough in my heart, then Adrian wasn't going to do it. No woman was going to do it. And I had to settle in my heart that I have to be satisfied with Jesus if I'm going to be of any use to any woman. Jesus is enough. That's why the song is right when it says, I got Jesus. And that's enough. Amen. And that's enough. We not only preach the necessity of Christ, we preach the sufficiency of Jesus. He is sufficient. He is the one you're looking for because he is the one who meets all our and what are the results of this preaching? Well, it says right here. The result of Paul's preaching was, and some of them were persuaded. Hallelujah. You know that is a glorious thought. This is the desire of every preacher who ever gets up. Somebody be persuaded. Every Sunday I come here and I stand here, it is my hope as I look out on some of those blank faces that somebody here is going to be persuaded of what I'm saying. Somebody. That was the goal. That you would be persuaded this morning, beloved, that the Bible, that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that you would be persuaded that you can be satisfied in him. And you know, after Paul talked about the necessity and the sufficiency of Christ, somebody was persuaded of that. Somebody was persuaded that Jesus 
suffered and died for them. And somebody was persuaded, therefore, that that Jesus who suffered and died and rose is enough. Is enough. I have found what I'm looking for. And it is enough. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And notice how they were persuaded. Not by miracles. They were persuaded simply by the preaching of the word. Paul preached and they were persuaded. No signs, no miracles, just Jesus. Crucified, buried, and raised again. Why? Why were they persuaded? Well, beloved, they were persuaded because Paul and Silas dared to do something. They were persuaded because Paul and Silas dared to stand up for Jesus. They dared to preach with confidence the uniqueness and the necessity of Christ. And when they did that, the Bible says here that after those people were persuaded, the Jews got jealous. They were jealous. I don't blame them because some of the leading women got saved. I'm sure they were jealous about that. And because of their jealousy, they incited this evil and angry mob looking for Paul and Silas. They can't find them. They go to Jason's house. Because Jason in Thessalonica was like Lydia in Philippi. He had opened his home to the apostles. It is there that there, it was their meeting place. It was the place out of which they were doing the ministry. It was the place where the disciples gathered on a regular basis. Jason had opened his home for the disciples. All the authorities and the other people knew it, and therefore they went to Jason's house looking for Paul and Silas. And when they could not find Paul and Silas, the Bible says that they dragged Jason out. And they brought Jason before the magistrate. Notice what they said when they brought Jason. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here to Thessalonica also. You know why those people were persuaded? Jason and the others, because Paul and Silas were willing to go and speak up for Jesus. Notice what it says. These men have turned the world upside down. The phrase, beloved, literally means that they are upsetting the world. They are upsetting the world they are upsetting our world. They were persuaded because Paul and Silas and others were willing to upset the world. Now, what it literally means is that they were troublemakers. That's what, that's what it says. These men are creating trouble, making trouble in our world. Everywhere Paul and his team went, they got into trouble. It just followed. It's like trouble just followed them. 
You go back and, and you rehearse it. In Philippi, they got in trouble. In Iconium, they got in trouble. In Lystra, they got in trouble. In Antioch, they got in trouble. And as they traveled to Thessalonica, you can imagine the conversations going on. What kind of trouble are we going to get in now? Because everywhere they went, trouble. Now, beloved, I don't want you to misunderstand me, okay? The Bible is clear. Christians should not be troublemakers. It, we just should not be troublemakers. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, in fact, the Bible sh- called, says that we should be called peacemakers. We should be peacemakers. Christians should be easy to get along with. If you are difficult to get along with, shame on you. Christians should be easy to get along with. Christians are not makers of trouble. What the Bible says in Romans chapter 14 and verse 19 tells us to pursue what makes us peaceful. That's what we do every day in our lives. We are pursuing those things that make for peace. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, the Bible says strive for peace with everyone. It can go on and on and on and on how the Bible tells Christians how to live in this world and that we are not troublemakers, we are peacemakers, we are getting along with our neighbors and everyone, we are striving for peace. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, it says, let your reasonableness be known to everybody. We are reasonable people. I am not coming to live next to you, to tear down your home. I am not in the cubicle next to you to destroy your day. I do not sit next to you in the classroom to ruin your time at school. I strive for peace with everyone. I want all my reasonableness to be known to everybody in the house. However, I am peacemaker as an ambassador of Christ. And when given the opportunity, I want you to know with all reasonableness, that I'm here. I'm here. I am here. Christ is here. And when I leave here, I want you to remember that I was here. When Paul left Iconium, they knew the Christians had been there. When he left Lystra, they knew the Christians had been there. You best believe when he left Philippi, they knew the Christians had been there. And now they are leaving Thessalonica, and it is like they're writing across the city walls. The Christians have been here. Is that true about you? true about you? 
Will they know you there? When you leave, will they have known that Christ was there? You know, I am always encouraged. When I go around the city of East Point and I meet people and they, I introduce myself and I'm going to say, I'm the pastor of East Point Church. And they say, oh, yeah, we know you. We know about that church. I can walk up into the Bowden Center where we used to meet. And we will walk in there and there will be people say, yes, we remember. I pray that when we, by God's grace, at some point or another, leave this building, whenever we walk back in this building and we mention the name of East Point Church, they will say, oh yeah, we remember when y'all were here. In your community? Will they remember you on your job? When you leave, will they say, well, I'm glad she gone. Or will they remember there was one who lived and worshipped and spoke Christ? Yes, beloved, at some times that will cause trouble. There's no doubt about it. There are times when I walk up in there and I say, okay, the conversation is about to change. There are times when you walk in the school and they see you coming, they're like, oh boy, here he comes. What has he got to say about Jesus now? At times in the break room, when you're sitting there, and there are people wondering, should I go sit next to her? Because I know she's going to want to talk about Jesus. Will they remember you? Don't fear them. And don't be afraid. Stand up for Jesus. Let people know. You are amongst those who are called by God to upset the world. With your reasonableness, with your peacemaking, with your desire to get along. But you want to upset the world and persuade people that Jesus is necessary and that Jesus is We are those that turn our world upside down. What a glorious day to be alive. These are those who changed our school. These are those who changed our atmosphere at work. These are those who changed our community. change our 